Greetings, this is a recording of our message for Sunday, October 25th, 2020. My name is John Dubois. I'm the pastor at Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship, and it's my privilege to be your teacher today. We, uh, this is the Sunday that we'll be first getting back in our in-person services after a little while of quarantine with the COVID-19, and so um, we're still providing these recordings for those of you who are unable to make it to church on Sunday morning. We just thank you so much for your faithfulness to our church by both watching these recordings and also by um, coming to church if you're able to do so. This is the first in a series on the a new series that we're starting on the Ten Commandments. Sometimes they're called the Ten Words because they're just words from God. And the first one here, the first uh, message in this series is the introduction, and it's entitled, I Brought You Out, because it talks about how God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of their slavery, slavery and gave them these commandments. And so let me uh, first read the Ten Commandments to you, and then we'll begin our study. In Exodus chapter 20, it starts with, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth or beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Those are the Ten Commandments, and uh, let's pray and ask God to bless us as we look at and understand these um, important words for us today. Father in heaven, we do exactly that. We come to you humbly, and we admit that we are a sinful people. We're not able to keep your perfect law, but it is a perfect law. And we just ask that you would give us wisdom and grace as we seek to understand what you're trying to tell us through these important words. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're going to take notes with me at all, 
the notes for each uh, one of the Ten Commandments. I can imagine there's going to be ten sermons because there are ten commandments in this series, but the notes are basically the same every time. And that's I want to answer five questions about each of the commandments. Do you see the beauty is the first question. Do you see the beauty of God's law? Do you see how it works and how well designed it is? And then the next question is, how does it work? How does this particular command work? What does it mean? How is it supposed to function? What, is, what does it mean to say you're not supposed to, thou shalt not steal? What, is, what does that do? What is, how does that work? So we'll spend time to understand it. And then the third question we'll ask each time is, well, how do we fail? How are we failing right now to keep the commandment, do not steal or, or do not covet? And then uh, the fourth question we'll ask each time is, how does Jesus fulfill this command? How does he fulfill it? If we understand how we fail, the next uh, most obvious question to me is, how does Jesus fulfill it? And then the fifth question would be each time is, how then are we now to live? How, how, how we now live? Huh. Uh, there's a missing word there. So how are we now to live, I think is the right thing to say. So I'll make a change to that. But how are we now to live? How are we supposed to live our lives now that we understand this commandment and we see how Jesus fulfills it. So those are basically the five questions that we're going to answer each time. <clears throat> so the first, and, and this time I'm just going to work through those five questions, looking at the entire body of the, the Ten Commandments all together, sort of as a group. So do you see the beauty? The first thing I want you to see about the beauty of these Ten Commandments is their symmetry and balance. There's ten of them. The first three have to do with our relationship with God. The second, the fourth and fifth, the next two have to do with our relationship with the community. The, the next three, commandments six, seven, and eight have to do with our relationship with other neighbors. And then um, the commandment ninth and ten has to do with our relationship with ourselves and how we deal with people on a more intimate level. So there's a whole structure that I'll bring out as we go through that. But the, I just want you to understand that they're they're perfectly balanced. There's there's a there's a ten, a three, a two, a two, and a three, and there's a structure in there. And so it's a beautiful piece of literature, really. The other thing that I mentioned already is that it's of divine origin. There's no way that a human being would have come up with these commandments, and there's no way that a human system could have ever been as perfectly um, non-self-contradictory as these rules are. And yet, many of the commands don't have anything to do with government at all. But, but human governments that have based their law systems on the Ten Commandments have been among the greatest of all of history and culture. Um, there aren't any internal conflicts. There are, there are rules-based systems out there that are fraught with conflicts. And we can talk about that maybe more in the future. But the idea that um, one of the rule-based systems is you're supposed to do whatever causes the most pleasure. Suppose you made a system that was built on what is the most pleasure? Let's give everybody the most pleasure. Well, the problem with that is, is does an ice cream uh, cone taste better after you've denied yourself for ice cream for a couple of days or even longer? Or does it taste better um, if you have it whenever you want? And so the idea of how do you know what is the, how do you, if the goal is the greatest pleasure, how do you develop a system, a rule about whether you should fast to make the ice cream taste really good or whether you should have ice cream anytime you want? Because one of those options or both of those options imply some kind of absence of pleasure in order to make the pleasure greater. And so we have this built-in 
problem of which rule is the most important rule. And then what about how would my conflicts work? What if the goal is my pleasure over your pleasure? And so you fall and you hurt your nose and I laugh. So that's pleasure for me if I see you stumble and make a mistake, but that's not pleasure for you because you had to fall at my expense. And so the point is, is that there are conflicts between us as persons. All of that to say quickly is that the Ten Commandments from God are not if they're well understood, do not have inherent built-in conflict. They always conform to the perfect will of God. And they can be summarized, as Jesus does in the New Testament, as love the Lord your God with all your heart. You love God first, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And those two things, those sum up the law, and there is no contradiction. It never contradicts loving your neighbor to not murder and to not steal and to not commit adultery. Those are all the same contribution towards the same goal of loving your neighbor. So there's no internal conflict. The other thing that I notice in these in the beauty of the Ten Commandments is there's surprising emphasis. The things that we would need more time on, like thou shalt not murder, is just a one-liner. But when God says, don't make a graven image, he spends a lot of time, a graven a, an idol, don't make some physical form an idol. Graven image is the old English version for it. But um, God spends a lot of time explaining why and what not to do. No animals, no fish. And, and then he talks about, um, when he says, don't misuse his name, he goes into a lot of detail there. And so there's a surprising amount of emphasis in some of the commandments than compared to others. And it's just interesting to me and something that we'll want to see also. But again, part of what makes it such beautiful material. It is exactly like David could say, I love your law. Your law is beautiful. It delights my soul. It's beautiful in every way. The other thing I wanted you to see about the Ten Commandments is that they're holistic. They, have, they impact all of life. They impact my relationship with God primarily. They impact my relationship with my family members, my close loved ones, my parents and my wife. They affect my relationship with my neighbors and co-workers. They, they affect my relationship with, with strangers, with people who are foreigners. So every part of my life is impacted by this. Myself, my relationship with God, there's no part of it that isn't addressed, and it isn't addressed well. And so the ten words really are amazing in that sense. Okay, so that was how it's beautiful. You see the beauty in the Ten Commandments? I hope so, and I hope you'll see that even more as we complete this study together. But the next thing I wanted to point out is how does it work? And so each week as we go through these specific commands, we'll get more involved. But right now I'm going to kind of back this up and say, how does the law, the law overall work? How does it function together? And so how does it work? Um, the first thing is that the Bible tells us that the, the law of God, these Ten Commandments in particular, when we say the law of God, we mean, um, in the most general sense, the entire Old Testament. But in a more specific sense, it can mean the commandments. There's like some 400 and some, uh, at least. But there's always the core of the law, and that's the Ten Commandments. So how does the law, in this case, I'll be using the word most often to regard to um, refer directly to the Ten Commandments, how does the law work? And the Bible tells us that it works like a mirror. Look at this in James 1, um, 22. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so here James is talking about the word being God's entire Old Testament. Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror. 
and after looking at themselves go away and immediately forget what they look like. But those who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So the law of God is like a mirror. We look in there and we see ourselves. We see what we're like. And if we think and understand ourselves correctly, then that's the basis upon which we can gain freedom in Christ. And so it's, uh, it tells us about what we're like, it tells us what God is like, and it tells us about our relationship to him. It doesn't do any good to not know the truth. And the Bible, the law of God, functions as a mirror in that case. So it's like a mirror, but it also restrains evil in some ways, okay? The law of God does restrain evil in the world. It stops us from doing things that we're not supposed to do. When a parent says to his child, no, no, it does stop them. But in some ways, it doesn't actually stop us. It makes us worse. But we'll study that part later when we talk about how we fail. But I do want to point out that the law's purpose, part of the law's purpose, is to restrain evil. Even though it doesn't do so perfectly, it does so in some ways. For example, in 1 Peter, he says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as to the supreme authority, or to governors, or those who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So you see what's going on here is God has established government. We see this in Romans 13 as well, that God sends people to establish government, to set up the rules, and the purpose is to restrain evil. It's to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. And so there's a reason that there's police officers out there stopping us from driving too fast in little neighborhoods because we don't want to hurt children by accidentally running over them or being too loud. And so there's the, the government is restraining evil and the government is an agent of God and God gives laws in order to restrain us that way. So the law functions like a mirror. It restrains evil in some cases. And then it teaches us how to love our neighbor. If the greatest commandment is love your neighbor or love others, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. If that's the greatest law, then how does that actually play out? And James gives us a good example in chapter 2 uh, of James. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, so that's the royal summary of the law, you are doing right. So that's good. But how do you do that? How do you know you're, you're loving your neighbor as yourself if you don't sometimes dive into the details of the Ten Commandments? Look at this. As an example, James is pointing out, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, how is that true? Well, in the book of James, he talks about these occasions where a rich person would come into their fellowship and they would give them the best seat. But if a poor person came, they'd give them a low seat. And so they were, they were showing favoritism. They were making judgments in their own hearts, looking at people who were rich and giving them favor, looking at the poor and not blessing them. And so that was favoritism. So he says, when you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So you've got to understand all the pieces fit together. You can't just obey 99% of the law. You've got to obey it all. And if you break it, you break it all. But then he says, For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And Jesus tells us, You've heard that it was said before, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who says you fool to his neighbor or anyone who's angry with his brother has committed murder in his heart already. Almost like a Cain 
who wanted to kill his brother Abel before he actually did the act of murder had already come to a place of hating his brother in his heart. And so he was guilty of murder in advance of his action because it was in his heart. And so, again, James going back to this case of showing favoritism, the command about adultery doesn't apply, but the command about murder does. If you're starting to elevate one person above another, you're showing hatred, you're not showing fair treatment. And so he says, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. If you're doing that, if you're showing favoritism, it's likened to murder, and that makes you a lawbreaker. <clears throat> so if you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, but if you are, you have become a lawbreaker. So that's how it works. It's like a mirror. It restrains evil in some cases. It teaches us how to love our neighbor, and it's by grace. The law itself is by grace. And let me first show you by its timing in the way that it was given to the people of Israel. If you go back to our text in Exodus chapter 20, our home text, and it says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So the first thing that God says from the mountain when he speaks the Ten Commandments for himself, out of audibly so that everybody could hear it in their own language, in, in, in the Hebrew language, God shouted these things from the mountains. The first thing he said is, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So he already says, he hasn't even given a commandment yet, but he explains, I'm the Lord your God, I'm your God, I'm in relationship with you, I rescued you from slavery in Egypt, so I've rescued you from slavery, which is always a picture of sin, the slavery to sin, and so God has rescued them from their place of slavery and now he brought them out of Egypt, out of the land. So I've freed you. You're already my people. You're in relationship with me. And now I'm going to tell you how to live. It's important that the timing is this way. Because if, if it was the other way around, then it would have to be that the people lived the right way first and obeyed all the Ten Commandments. And then God would save them. And then they'd be in relationship. But that has it backwards. The point is, is that this is by grace. The relationship is already established by grace, not by merit on the part of the people of Israel, not that they were so great, but because God promised to their fathers, the, the ancestors, that he would bring them out of slavery someday. And so God is gracious, and that's his timing. So the, the law works in these ways. It's by grace. The timing shows us that. But it's also by grace in that the gospel, the law is part of the good gospel. It's the explanation for the gospel itself. Without the law, the gospel doesn't make any sense because it wouldn't mean, it would, we wouldn't understand what Jesus had to do to live perfect righteousness on our behalf. So it's part of the good gospel. And let me just read some passage here out of Timothy about how Paul explains to Timothy how this law is good and, and why it works. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. There's ways to misuse the law of God and to, to justify yourself by taking it out of context or by taking only part of it. But we know that it is good if it's used properly. So the, God, the law itself is good. But we also know that the law is made not for righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, 
for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those who practice, for those practicing homosexuality, for for slave traders and liars and perjurers. That's who the law is for. It's for people who violate the law. And it's for whatever else is contrary to what? So the law helps us understand those things that are contrary to what? To, to the sound doctrine, that's the clear teaching, the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. This gospel has been entrusted to Paul as he writes here. And so what he's saying is that the law is good, it's gracious, and it helps us understand, and it helps us clarify what is sound doctrine and what conforms to the gospel so that we can understand what Jesus has done. You see, if we don't have a handle on thou shalt not murder, then we can't figure out why it was wrong for Jesus to have to be killed on our behalf, but why him having done so relieves us from God's condemnation. And so we need to understand, the, the point is, is that the gospel is not um, absent of the structural content of the law. It's the Ten Commandments that gives the bone structure, the skeleton, to the beautiful gospel that we have. We all are sinners. We lost it all. We broke God's law, and we lost everything. And yet Jesus fulfills it all. He meets the total requirements of the law. He lives a perfect life. He never, ever violates the Ten Commandments. And in Jesus, then, those who trust him by faith, we get it all. And so we need to understand the gospel. We need to understand the law in order to understand the gospel. And those things are part of it. So I'm just trying to point out here that the law is a critical, um, empirical, um, epistemological content of the gospel. It's the knowledge part of the gospel. You've got to have the law. So the law works in a lot of ways. It's like a mirror. It's, it restrains evil. It teaches us how to love our neighbor. It shows us that it's by grace in the timing of the giving of the law. It's by grace in the fact that it reflects a good gospel. And I want to also say it's by grace in that it gives freedom. One of the things that we tend to do as human beings is think that freedom is the absence of rules, the absence of laws. The way I'm really going to be free is that I don't obey anything. But a person who's that way winds up being a slave to themselves so quickly that they're just a big fat blob on the couch. They can't do anything. There's no prison greater than the imprisonment of our own selfish desires. And so really the truth is that freedom doesn't come from the absence of law. Freedom comes from the right relationship with the right law. If I live according to God's rule and his love and by his spirit, then I am set free in the law of Christ and the law of love, and I'm able to do what exactly God wants me to do. So the point is, is that the law works by giving us freedom from our selfishness. Look at James. He says, those who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. We read this part already, but I'm just emphasizing here that the law itself gives freedom because it shows us how not to be imprisoned by ourselves, by our own slavery to sin. And if we continue it, not forgetting what we have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This is the great blessing of wisdom in God. 
And this is why David can say, I love your law. It's a light to my path. It, it shows me the way to go. It keeps me from being foolish. It protects me from the violent one. It protects me from mockers. It, for, it protects me from the strange woman who would destroy my wife. Well, so do you see the beauty? That was the first question. How does that work? We talked about that a little bit. And so the next question is, how do we fail? How, how is it that we fail so miserably at obeying God's law? Well, there's a number of ways. One of them is we fail when we fail at all. When I already tried to read from James here, if you really keep the royal law, found scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So the point is, is we break the law, we fail the entire law when we fail at all. We have to be perfect, and we're not that perfect. And so if you commit adultery but do not commit murder, you're still a lawbreaker. So we fail when we fail at all. But we also fail because we're sinners. You see, our problem is not an ethical problem or an empowerment problem or an education problem. Our problem is, is that we're broken. We are sinners. We have chosen to follow in Adam and Eve's path of, of making our own path and taking our own way. And so we have become sinners. And sinners are those who choose to be their own boss. And when we do that, we, we're sinners. And by choice, that's what we do. Look how, <coughs> excuse me, look how Paul talks about it in Romans 7. So what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Is it the law's fault that I can't do it? And he would say, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. If it weren't for the fact that <coughs> the law tells me about sin, I wouldn't have known how bad sin was. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. This is what the law does. And Paul, who, who considered himself some sort of um, self-righteous person, that he was, with regard to legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. He said that he could, he had kept all those things perfectly, or that other man who came to Jesus, and, and um, he says, how can I inherit life, eternal life? And Jesus said, what do you think? And he said, well, I kept these commands, this command. And Jesus said, that's good, you've done well. And, and the, the man said, I kept all these from my youth. But then Jesus pointed at him and said, go and sell all you have. You see, there's something that you're not willing to give God. And so here Paul was thought he was, he was perfectly righteous. He said, but I would not have known what it was to covet had the law not told me thou shalt not covet. But my own sin, my sinfulness, seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment and produced in me every kind of covetousness. The more Paul studied what it was not to covet made him more covetous. This is what it's like to be a sinner. When we're told not to, we want to even more. We're that way. Oh, what a shame. What a sad white way to be. To, to realize that when God says, thou shalt not steal, all I want to do is steal. When God says, thou shalt not covet, all I want to do is covet. I was thinking when I was about when I was a little kid, uh, about fifth grade, and my neighbor had a swimming pool, and, and I would want so bad to go swimming in their pool on a hot summer day. And so all morning I would, I would basically, you know, 
uh, schmoozed the kid up to try to get him to let me swim in his pool in the afternoon. And, and so we would play with matchbox cars and we would take turns picking. And I remember one time letting him pick first and pick second. And he got the coolest matchbox one is a truck with a, with a car trailer. And it's really fun if you're a little boy to have a trailer that, um, a truck that has treads on the wheels that turn well. And if you pull it along on, if there's just a little bit of sand on top of the cement or the sidewalk, then it leaves tracks. And there's nothing cooler in the world than leaving tracks with a toy car and, and making roads and all this. And I just sat there looking at him and he had that truck and I was so envious. It was, I wanted it so bad. And my adult self wants to yell at little Johnny and say, what are you worried about? It's just a toy. You can play with it in a few minutes. But I was so overwhelmed with envy and covetousness. And it was all to manipulate him just so I could swim in his pool anyway. It was just, it was horrible. You see, sin seized the opportunity and, and it produced in me every kind of covetousness. I wanted that toy. And I wanted to swim in the pool. And I was in a dilemma in the whole thing. It's embarrassing. So anyway, from apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang into life, and I died. That's what the law does. <clears throat> I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Why does it work that way? Because I'm a sinner. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? No, it wasn't the law's fault. But nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it was used, it used what was good, the law, to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. When I understand what God's law says, and I agree with how good it is. And I still violate God's command. I see how utterly sinful I am. I can't even go along with it when I know it's to my benefit. I'm a rebel through and through. So the way I fail is when I fail at all. And when I fail because I'm a sinner. And, and I fail because I'm a slave to sin. It's not just I'm a sinner sometimes. It's that I'm a slave to sin. There's no power in me to relieve me from the slavery. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You can't be not a slave to sin, not unless he does something. So that's how we fail. We're totally sinners, and the law is just more evidence that we haven't got anything to stand on. So the next question, the fourth question of our five is, how does Jesus fulfill it? How does Jesus fulfill this specific commandment, do not covet or do not steal? But in this case today as introduction, how does Jesus fulfill all the law? And so there's a few passages I'd like to share. Um, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he understands, he's very self-aware that his role is could be perceived as someone who's going to take away all of the traditions and the rules of the law. But no, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when he says, I am the Sabbath, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and he can give us what we need through those things. And so he fulfills the law. And he says, truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus accomplishes it all. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is not, even though he comes with grace and truth, he is not getting rid of even the least of the commands. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is all about practicing and teaching. And look at he says, he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to be perfect. You need to be more perfect than the guys that are perfect, or you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. And we understand, of course, that only Jesus is the one who's able to purchase salvation for us. And then look what John um, also says in the introduction to the book of John. He, he explains how the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God and with God. And then he says in verse 17, the law was given through Moses. That's a great thing. That grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes the law and he adds on and builds and he fulfills it and he adds grace and truth. It's not just grace and mishmash, it's grace and truth. And he puts them together and he comes through. And he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus, the Son of God, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. And so Jesus comes as the fulfiller of the law and the revelation of God, and he makes known God to us. And he makes it clear that his love and his sacrifice on the cross is able to give us a relationship with God. Then also, again, back in John chapter 8, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to the family forever. So when you're a, a slave, you're not part of the family. But when you've been adopted and brought into the family, you're part of it forever. So if the Son sets you free, if this Son of God, if the one who fulfills all righteousness sets you free, you will be free indeed. We will be set free in Jesus. So Jesus fulfills the law. He meets all of its righteous requirements. He never, ever, ever fails at any point of the law to love God with all his heart and to love his neighbor as himself. And he fulfills it. And by the one who fulfills it, he's able to set us free. So that leads to our last question. And how are we now to live? Or how we now live? <laughs> I'm going to have to fix that. I'm sorry. <clears throat> and so how, uh, how are we now to live? How do we now live? There's a better way to say it, right? How do we now live? Well, first of all, we need to live without fear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and the reason I want to talk about the fear here is I want to go back and describe what it was like for those people who first heard the Ten Commandments. Back in Exodus chapter 20, at the end of the Ten Commandments, look at what it says. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. 
God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So the fear of God is good. If you're afraid, that's, that's a consequence thing. So you, you'll be kept from sinning. But look at what 1 John says. Now we jump all the way to the New Testament. He says, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And so Jesus is now the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and they in God. And so there's not this distance, fear, this thunder. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God loves us in Jesus. We know it because Jesus died for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. And this is how we know. Uh, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. So when, when judgment comes, are you going to be afraid? Am I going to be afraid? Am I afraid of the Ten Commandments today? Am I afraid of what God's going to do at the judgment? No. I have confidence because there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so if I'm still afraid, if I can't get, if I'm afraid of God's wrath and punishment, then I haven't understood the gospel. I haven't realized that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He took the punishment. He's the one who was suffered alone on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced all of God's wrath, and none of that punishment is for me, who are, is in Christ by grace. By faith, I trusted in Jesus, and now I'm, I'm loved by God, and, and I, God's not bending the rules to love me. It's okay for God to love me, because Jesus has paid the price. And so God is not unrighteous, Jesus is not unrighteous, and I'm safe in him. There is no fear because fear has to do with punishment. If you're still afraid of God, you haven't understood how he's fulfilled the law and paid the price for you. So how do we now live? We live without fear. There's no condemnation. But look, we also need to live in... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> we need to live in reverence and in awe. Just because there's no condemnation does not mean that we aren't to be in reverence and awe. Look at how Hebrews talks about this mountain that the law was given on. You have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. What mountain is the Hebrews writer talking about? He's talking about the mountain of Sinai where the law was given. To a trumpet blast that got louder and louder or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was being commanded. The voice of God was so loud and so intimidating that the people begged Moses to never have him listen to it again. And that said, even if an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. We learned that from the Deuteronomy 9 passage. And so Moses is trembling with fear. Even Moses, the great leader and follower of God. But the Hebrews writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. So we've already joined this group of worshipers. And to, we've joined the church of the firstborn, Jesus, whose names are written in heaven. So you and I have our names written in heaven today because we're in Christ. And you have come to God, the judge of all. So God, 
God is the one who judges every person, and we've come to him without fear of condemnation, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So we've joined with others. We are not alone. We're with the church and with all of the, of the saints who preceded us, all of the believers from the Old Testament, all the believers from the New Testament, all the believers from a thousand years ago, from a hundred years ago, all the believers in the future. We're all together, and we've come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is the one who, by his own blood, once for all goes in and pays the penalty for sin. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, right? Abel died, that was the end. But now Jesus dies, and his death, his blood pays it all. His blood washes away our sin. So now that that's true, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? If you think that you could not escape from Mount Sinai and say, eh, I don't need God's law. I don't need a savior. I don't need any way. If that's what we were like at the earthly mountain, how do we think that we can escape the wrath of God when we, when we fail to listen to him who came from heaven. When Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you come to me, I'll give you the Father. I, no man comes to the Father except through me. If we ignore Jesus, how can we expect to be free? You see, there should be reverence and awe in what Jesus has done for us. At that time, back on Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The heavens are going to shake. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. So there's only one more time that the shaking happened. And that is the creative thing. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. What cannot be shaken? The things that cannot be shaken. Those are eternal things. The not created things. And so therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, that cannot be shaken. We're believers in Jesus' family. We're co-heirs with Jesus. We're part of his kingdom. There, there's nothing that can be shaken. Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably. Not with, oh, it doesn't matter, but with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This God who is saving us, this God who gave the Ten Commandments, who, who came on Mount Sinai with smoke, has, and who also came on Mount Calvary and punished the Lord Jesus with all of his wrath, that God is a consuming fire, and he has made us safe in him that we are no longer shaken. Our response should not be flippant. It should be even greater reverence and awe. We should be even more impressed with who he is. So how do we now live? Without fear, but in reverence and awe, and with great thankfulness. Our, our gratitude, gratitude should be the mark of a Christian. We have been given so much. Look at that last verse from, from uh, Hebrews 12 again. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. I mean, how dare we be ungrateful for what God's doing in our life? He has done it all, and we get it all in Jesus. We're so safe. So how do we now live? Here, there's no condemnation, but in reverence and awe because of what Jesus has done for us and how great God is in his salvation and with great thankfulness. And, and finally, I just want to say that we need to live in the freedom of Jesus. We need to realize that because of this great work that Jesus has done, 
we're free in him. Look at how Jesus says it in John 8. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When, when Jesus pays all of the penalty of the law, when he goes to the cross and experiences all of God's wrath and, and undergoes that great affliction on our part, and because of his love, he offers that by grace and says, if you will trust me, I will save you. I will trade with you. I will give you my righteousness and your sin is on my account. When Jesus does that, he sets us free and we become sons of God. We become heirs with Jesus. We become part of the establishment of the power structure of Jesus's family. We're, we're heirs with him and we're free from the power of sin. I still have the presence of sin in my life. I still deal with it, but it doesn't have the power that it used to have. And someday when Jesus comes back and takes me home or when I die and go live with him, I'll be free from the presence of sin and I'll never, ever, ever sin again. So right now I need to live as one who has been set free for uh, set free from sin, set free from the consequences of the law. Amen. Isn't that a great gospel, a great salvation? I hope you're excited about this study on the Ten Commandments, and I pray that it'll go well, it'll be helpful for you, and my greatest goal of all would be that we would all come to worship Jesus even more with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what Jesus has done. You sent him, Father. You loved us so much. You loved us in Jesus, and and if we ever love Jesus, it's now. When we see what he's done for us, we love him and we thank you in Jesus' name.